So we recently came through our revival meetings, and then uh, I came through another revival meeting, so I guess I'm doubly blessed, either that or doubly tired, one or the other. But, um, you know, we look at revival meetings as a time of, of being revived, of, of experiencing new life, new growth, being challenged in the Word of God. Understanding that we have room to grow, that the Christian life, there is no neutral in the Christian experience, but that either, either we're falling away or we're springing forward. There is no neutral experience in the Christian life. And so we come to a week of revivals, hopefully with our cups turned up, hoping to be filled and encouraged and strengthened and empowered to live life a life that pleases God. And so, we would think that maybe after a week of revivals that we're, we're all set now for another year, that, that we can just live life and we're doing great and spiritual zeal is 100% and, and we're, we're just kind of whacking it out of the ballpark as it were. Um, and yet, I will be quick to confess, I know in my life, how quickly an experience can just simply become an event, you know? We're prone to forget. We're prone to, oh, lose our zeal. What seems so strong and so important and what seems so um, very vivid in our minds at a certain service or in a certain week you know, as time moves along, we kind of cool off a little bit, and it's not quite as urgent as it was, and, you know, maybe even a certain thing brought us to tears, but then a week or two down the road, well, life moves on, and everyone's still alive, and <laughs> we can lose our zeal a bit. That experience can just simply become a past event. I would like to challenge us this morning in our zeal for God. I'd like to look at two examples in Scripture of those who had, we could say, a red-hot zeal for God and His Word. But first, I want us to ponder a bit this thing of complacency. We've all heard of the awful disease of cancer. And even the word itself sort of strikes fear in our hearts a little bit. It makes us catch our breath. Uh, we're quick to think, now who? Now who has cancer? And you know, cancer is no respect of persons, but it comes to the young, even little children sometimes. It comes to the middle age. It comes to the old it's no respecter of persons. And it comes secretly. And then silently it begins to do its grim work. And often by the time it is detected, uh, the victim's doom has already been sealed. Not always, but oftentimes. That work has been happening behind the scenes, as it were. And cancer kills, but not fast. At least, not overnight. 
It takes a little bit of time. And slowly it eats away at the body, squeezing the spark and the zeal out of a person's life until many times their very life is snuffed out. I understand that cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States. Over 600,000 people die from it a year here in America. And in a group of this size, no doubt many of us have been affected in some kind of way uh, from cancer, whether it's a, a parent or a sibling or a cousin or a child, niece or nephew. Probably almost every family has been impacted in some way, perhaps lost a member in the family due to this dreaded disease called cancer. And it seems many times like it's running wild. But you know, there's a cancer that is also running wild in the church today, and that is the cancer of complacency. And I read this quote from Dr. William Burnham. He said, this cancer has been responsible for the death of thousands of individuals and countless churches over the years. It is responsible for these congregations closing their doors and ending their ministries forever. And today, if this cancer is not addressed or confronted, it will be lethal to the very existence of Christ's church as he intended it to be. Make no mistake, the church will go on, and as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. However, many congregations will fail to live up to their potential, and many will fail to exist altogether if this cancer is not dealt with. This cancer has a name, complacency. Complacency has been called the curse of Christendom. It paralyzes the church. It is seen in lukewarmness among the church's leadership and members. In fact, this cancer is far worse on the church than on any form of outright rebellion. I want to repeat that. This cancer is far worse on the church than on any form of outright rebellion. If ignored, the cancer of complacency leads to death in 100% of the cases. But if confronted, it can be conquered and it can be cured. Praise the Lord for that. There is hope. Jesus said, in speaking of the latter days, that because iniquity or as iniquity abounds, the love of many will grow cold. But he doesn't end there. He says, but he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. There is hope. And so I would like to look this morning at two examples from the Bible. The first is King David, and the second is the people of Judah. Turn to Psalm 63. We're not looking at examples of complacency. No, that's not the direction we want to go this morning. We're looking at examples this morning of red-hot zeal for God and His Word. In other words, we fight complacency. We fight drift. We fight this cooling-off tendency with a red-hot zeal for God and His Word. I've entitled this message, Better Than Life. Now... What could possibly be better than life itself? And we enjoy life. 
We enjoy the many blessings that life has to offer. Think of a beautiful spring morning. This is the first day of spring, I believe. Think of how beautiful this morning is. And, and it just gives you a fresh appreciation for God and what he's doing in our lives, what he's done in creation. And you, it just makes us feel alive and well. And we enjoy life. We enjoy the things of life. And yet, the psalmist David said that there is something that is even better than life itself. And that is a rich, vibrant relationship, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ supersedes the joys and blessings and gift of physical life. Psalm 63. O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with Joyful lips, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul follows hard after thee, thy right hand upholds me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, they shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Now, in my Bible, I find this heading above this psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, that's important for us to note this morning, okay? He wasn't back at home on his easy chair. He wasn't down lounging on the beach, sipping pina coladas. <laughs> no. No, he was on the run. He was away from home. He was in a bad state, okay? And it, it is generally supposed that David wrote this when he was on the run from his very own son, Absalom. Can you imagine that? Being on the run from your own son. His own son was out to kill dad. His son wanted to, wanted to take over the authority. Wanted to take over the kingdom. He wanted to be the new head of command. And so here is dad running for fear of his life from his own son. And so you ponder that. That gives a context here. Of what we're looking at. And so David is not at home. He is not at church on Sunday morning. Where's David? Where's David? Have you seen David? Where? No, he's not. He's on the run. He's in the wilderness. He's grieving. He's sorrowing. How he would like to be back home. How he would like to be back in the sanctuary worshiping. All he has is his memories. All he has is remembering what God did. All he has is remembering the power and greatness of God back there when life was good and normal. 
Listen to this introduction to this psalm. I quote, This was probably written while David was fleeing from Absalom. Certainly at the time he wrote it, he was king. And the reason it says certainly is because here in verse 11, David refers to himself as the king, but the king shall rejoice in God, speaking of himself in the midst of all this trouble, yet he shall rejoice in God. But he was also hard-pressed by those who sought his life. David did not leave off singing because he was in the wilderness. Neither did he in slovenly idleness go on repeating psalms intended for other occasions. But he carefully made his worship suitable to his circumstances and presented to his God a wilderness hymn when he was in the wilderness. There was no desert in his heart, though there was desert all around him. We too may expect to be cast into rough places ere we go hence. In such seasons may the eternal comforter abide with us and cause us to bless the Lord at all times, making even the solitary place to become a temple for Jehovah. And so let me just say that your wilderness can become a place of worship when your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is front and center in your life. That's the key. Your wilderness then can become a place of worship. And we see that's how it was for David here. He wasn't just speaking pie-in-the-sky type of words here. This wasn't just something that he was blowing off the top. No, not at all. But this was an experience that he had. This was real with him. This was deep, authentic. He was able to respond to the wilderness because of his relationship he had back at home. Okay? And so, because of his relationship with God when life was normal and everything was right... That then carried him through the times when things were all bent out of shape. And so here, this is a continuation of the way he lived his life. Now, I want us to note, before we look at some points here, I want us to note that David often wrote in the first person. You understand that when you read the Psalms. Words like I, and my, and me, and mine. He wrote in the first person. He wrote from his heart about his personal experience. He wrote from his heart about the trouble that he was going through, about the situations that he was dealing with in life. And that makes the Psalms especially powerful for me. Because then when I read them, well, they're speaking about me. <laughs> they're speaking about my personal experience. They're speaking about my situations, my troubles. Oh God, thou art my God, you see. Early will I seek thee. And so this morning, I'm giving the points with a very personal appeal because, yes, they were the cry of David's heart and they are the cry of my heart. And I trust that as we look at this together, they will be your heart's cry too. Thinking of a red hot zeal for God and His Word, I would like for us to note these nine points from this passage here this morning. And the first is, David said, God is my possession. God is my possession. Verse 1, O God, Thou art my God. 
Thou art my God. It speaks of a personal relationship with God. It's not looking out at the others and saying, you're their God. I see what you're doing in their lives. But it's, no, I feel you in my life because you're mine. It's a personal experience. You know, a little girl might say, this is my doll baby. And they're saying that I was given this. It's mine. You can't take it. It's mine. It speaks of it's a personal appeal. It's a possessive attitude. David said in another place, the Lord is my shepherd. And here we can all say that, God, you are my God. That's something that all of us can say. God is my possession. Secondly, I notice here that God is my priority. Early will I seek thee. God is my priority. Now, embedded in this word early, we find double meaning. And the first is that it speaks of a when, and the second part speaks of a how. Early, embedded in that meaning, is time of day. Literally referring to the morning, or as dawn breaks, at the break of dawn, early in the morning. And that speaks of priority. God, I look to you first thing. When I get up in the morning, you are what hits me first. You are the one that I give my first energies to. My focus first goes to you, God. You are my priority. Early will I seek thee. But also embedded in that word early is the thought of how. Because that word also has to do with an urgency. Other translations may say, earnestly I seek you. And so not only does it talk about when we pursue God, but it talks about how we pursue God. It's not something that we just do haphazardly. It's not something we do if we just have time. It's not something that we do in any lighthearted manner. But it's something that we do out of a sense of urgency, like I need you, God. And like my day is not going to be successful if I don't give you first place. And so there's an urgency. There's something uh, that we are doing earnestly. I quote, the distinguishing word of this psalm is the word early. When the bed is the softest, we are most tempted to rise at lazy hours. But when comfort is gone and the couch is hard, if we rise the earlier to seek the Lord, we have much for which to thank the wilderness. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? Yeah. When the bed is soft, we tend to sleep in, right? But this writer says that <laughs> when comforts are, are gone somewhat and the couch is a bit hard, we find the wilderness to be a blessing because it prompts us, it calls us to rise and meet God. Thirdly then, God is my passion. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh 
longeth for thee. God is my passion. Once again, it takes that idea of urgency. Of earnestly seeking after God. Oh, there's a lot of things these days that, that we can become passionate about. There's a lot of things that take our attention and we throw our efforts into, whether it be hobbies or work or family or travels or you name it. But here, David makes it clear that God is what he wants more than any of these others. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land without water. Fourthly then, God is my perspective. Verse 2. To see thy power and thy glory. Now keep in mind here that David is not at home. David is on the run. David is in the wilderness fleeing for his life. But what is his perspective? He is remembering back to being in the sanctuary. He is remembering to those, back to those times when he experienced God's power and God's glory in those collective times of worship. Or maybe it was even into that personal relationship with God he had in the temple. The glory and the power of God was experienced. In fact, that's where people went. Because there in the sanctuary, that's where people got right with God. That's where the mercy seat was. That's where lives were restored and where beautiful things happened. And so he remembers that. But that's not where he is now. And he says, Lord, I'm, I'm thirsting for you. I'm longing for you. I, I'm remembering those times when you revealed your power and glory back in the sanctuary. And that's where his perspective is, even while he is in the wilderness. Next, he says, God is my praise. Verses 3 and 4. God is my praise. He says, I will praise you with my lips. He says, I will praise you with my hands. I will lift up my hands. You know, when we do that, in a sense, it's a, it's a theme of humility. We're lifting our hands to a higher and greater being. It's not about me. But we're acknowledging that there is someone greater than us. There's a power that is much greater than our power. And so God is my praise, you see. And I will show that with my lips. I will show that with the raising of my hands, which is a really a posture of body, of attitude, I mean. A posture inside. But he also says that Actually, this is a lifelong thing for me. Thus will I bless thee while I live. All my life long, I want to praise you. He says, though, verse 3, he prefaces that by saying, Because thy loving kindness is better than life. <laughs> Because your love is better than life. Because my relationship with you, God, is, is even better than life itself. Better than the physical things that are so meaningful and so real. Because my relationship with you is greater than that. Then I'm going to praise you. It will be a lifelong praise to you. 
Next, David says, God is my provision. Verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Or another way to say that would be that my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. The very richest, the very most nutritious, the most wholesome things that you could feed on physically. He said, God, you are to me like that in a spiritual sense. You bring ultimate nutrition, ultimate wholeness to my life. Like the richest of foods ever could. And truly, dear people, the word of God the Word of God is so rich and so powerful. It strengthens us. It feeds us. Uh, young people, children, stop your writing for just a little bit. And, and I just want to encourage you, children, as you read the Word of God and as you study, as you memorize Scripture in school and at home, learn to make it your food. Learn to make it your diet. In other words, you will find the Word of God to be rich and nourishing and wholesome, and it gives you strength to live in a way that pleases God. So don't just read it, don't just memorize it, but apply it to your life, live by it, and you will find much strength and power in that. Next. David says, God is the theme of my pondering. Verse 6, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Now I understand there's three watches of the night. There's one from sunset to 10 o'clock. Uh, there's another one from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the morning. And the third watch from 2 to 6 in the morning. And David says, I think upon you. I remember you throughout the watches of the night, whether he's up at first, second, or third watch, or maybe he's having a bad night and he's up all night. He says, my minds, the theme of my thoughts are on you, dear God. You know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you probably don't think, now what should I think about now? Hmm, let's see, what can I think about? No, normally something is on your mind. Maybe that's why you woke up, okay? In other words, what is on your mind, oftentimes through the day, kind of sticks with you and lingers with you through the night. And you wake up and ah, oh, that's back on your mind again. And the fact that David was thinking about God when he woke up in the middle of the night, in other words, that was just what came to his mind. It proves that God was real to him and in him throughout the day. Okay, I will think upon you. I'm meditating, I'm pondering your ways, Lord, when I wake up at night. That's a testimony. That challenges me. It, sure, it certainly does. Next then, David says, God is my portion. Verses 7 and 8. God is my portion. Or we could say, God is my help. Because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. And then he goes on to say, my soul follows hard after thee. Or in other words, my soul clings to you. Or I'm cleaving to you, God. 
thy right hand upholds me. Because thou hast been my help, and thy right hand upholds me, speaks significantly about how God is our portion. Remember once again that David is going through a very difficult time. It's a wilderness experience. And he saw in a very real way that God was his help. God sustained him. God upheld him in those times. He gives the picture here of a mother hen guarding and helping surrounding her little chicks. What does it say here? Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. And I understand uh, that mother hens would do that when they have little chicks. If they notice danger, if maybe a hawk flies over, they may make a little noise or make some kind of activity, and the little chicks will all come running, and they'll actually cover them, as it were, with their wings. It's a place of warmth, a place of protection. It's a place of belonging. I was out there, but I'm, now I'm here. I'm within the circle of safety. We have that picture. In Psalm 91, David gives a similar picture. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers. This is talking about God. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings thou shalt trust. It's a beautiful picture of God's help and God's protection, which takes us to the last point I have here in this passage, and that God is my protection. Verses 9 through 11 speak of that. And David goes on to say that those who seek my life, well, they'll be destroyed. <laughs> they will not find success. They will be destroyed. God will see to that. And I don't think David was saying that I'm going to go out and kill them all, but he's leaving that up to God. He's, God, you take care of business. They're after my life. I'm calling to you, O oh God, for help, for protection. But all the meanwhile, the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. Well, once again, it's a beautiful picture of someone who had a red-hot zeal for God and His Word. And truly, well, as we mentioned in the men's Sunday school class this morning, true worth and true value is not so much felt in the many accomplishments that we uh, make in this life. It's not about all the accumulation in this life. But true worth and true value is found in a relationship with the Heavenly Father. You see, religion often centers on all the doing, what we're doing, what we're doing. A relationship focuses on who we are and our position in Christ Jesus. And there's safety there. 
there's warmth, there's belonging, there's purpose. Now, I invite you to 2 Chronicles chapter 15 for another story here. Another example of red-hot zeal for God and His Word. And you could say that this was a, a week of revival. This truly was a week of revival for the people of Judah. And it's such a beautiful picture of people who desired God with all their heart. And I want, to, I want you to notice as we go through here the contrast, what their lives were like, what the scene was like prior to this experience and then also after the experience. It's a beautiful picture of how God changes people's hearts and through changed hearts comes changed relationships, changed atmospheres. It makes for a very beautiful thing. Second Chronicles chapter 15. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. And so you, you see the atmosphere here. You see what the scene was like. And it goes on here in just a moment. But when they, in their trouble, did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought Him, He was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to Him that went out, nor to Him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. These were the words of the prophet. To Asa the king. And when Asa heard these words. And the prophecy of Oded the prophet. He took courage. And he put away the abominable idols. Out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin. And out of all the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim. And he renewed the altar of the Lord. That was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin. And the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh. And out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance, when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa, and they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice, and with shouting, and with trumpets, and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with, all their, with their whole desire. And he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about." What a beautiful picture. I want you to notice a word that comes 
uh, five times, or at least a form of this word, five different times in these 15 verses, and that is the word seek or sought. Verse 2, seek him. Verse 4, sought him. Verse 12, seek the Lord. Verse 13, seek the Lord. Verse 15, sought him with their whole desire. That is absolutely foundational (laughs) to experiencing the rest that comes at the end of the story. It it also is, is a reflection of the heart of David there in Psalm 63. Earnestly, early will I seek you. Now, I would, like to, I would like to go down through these verses and just draw some applications uh, for us today. But verse 2 there, you know, we, we must be serious with God if we expect His blessings. We must be serious with God. What does it say there? The Lord is with you while ye be with Him. And if you seek Him, He will be found of you. But if ye forsake Him, He will forsake you. God definitely promises blessings to the one who seeks Him with all their heart. And I find it interesting that, you know, so many people today talk about being blessed. So many people say that they're so blessed, and yet so few know what true blessings are all about. So many people today talk about being blessed, but then they'll talk about all their toys and their hobbies and their immoral lifestyle and so and so. And yet God makes it very clear time and time again in the Bible what blessing really means. How to find true blessing. It's not in the stuff of this life. It's not just when I have things that I want to have or things that make me feel good. It's not that. Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see, you want to experience the true blessing of God? You want to experience living in his presence, the presence of the king? Well, it demands holiness of life, purity of life. That person, the person who pursues God, a life of holiness and purity, they're the one who receives the blessing of the Lord. They're the ones who experience the real blessings of salvation. James 1.25 also speaks about the importance of not only hearing the word, but applying it. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, that man shall be blessed in his deed. You see? (laughs) The one who takes the word of God and makes it his guide for his life, who orders his life in accordance to the word of God, that is the one who experiences the blessing of God. It's not... Blessing is not something that I just get by amassing a lot of things or making a lot of money or... No, it's not about that. It's about obedience to God and His Word. 
And so Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you. I think we oftentimes get that backwards, that we, we try to accumulate all these things. We pursue so many things in life, and then we have this attitude that God, bless me. Bless me, God. And yet, uh, the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is, is all about having first things first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and God will see to it that your life is richly blessed with the things that you ought to have. Verse 5, we have this picture here of no peace. Now why was there no peace? Because in verse 3 we say that there was no true God being experienced in their lives. For this long season it says that Israel had been without a true God, without a teaching priest, without law. A picture of just every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And the result of that, there was no peace. And even for those coming and going, you'd get shot at. It was a very dangerous situation, it sounds like. Why should we be surprised? When there is no God, there will be no peace. There will be conflict and there will be problems. But when our desire is for God and His Word, we can experience abundant life. We can experience peace. In fact, that's how this story ends. They sought God with everything, and He was found of them Verse 15, and the Lord gave them rest round about. Verse 8, here we have a, a leader who recognized the need. He acknowledged that there was a need, and this need moved him to action. It says he took courage. He rallied the people. He understood that there was something that was between them and God. The means of relationship. The means of, a, of a, a wonderful, open, flowing conversation, you could say, with God was, was broken. What was broken? In verse 8, we notice that the altar of the Lord was in disrepair. The altar of the Lord was not in good shape. And that means that it was not currently being used. And the altar of the Lord, once again, was a place where people went and made things right. <laughs> That's where spiritual lives were restored. That's where beautiful things happened. That's where you made your wrongs right. That's where you experienced the renewed peace of God in your life. A clear conscience, once again. And it says here that that was in disrepair. And so King Asa acknowledged the need. He was a man of courage. He took courage and he renewed the altar of the Lord. Or he, he restored the means of relationship between God and the people. I ask you, is there something in your life that has taken the place that God deserves? Well, perhaps it's time to clean house then. Perhaps it's time to restore, renew the altar in your life. You know, God is not Lord when he is pushed back to second or third place. No. God is Lord when he's on the throne of our life, when he is directing our life. 
when we are bowing in surrender to him, God is Lord. Verse 9. This is so beautiful. <laughs> and the wording here just really stands out to me. Middle of verse 9, it says, For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. You see, when the work of God is alive and well, it is attractive. It attracts others. When something beautiful is happening, not only in your individual lives, but in our congregation, when God is working, when there's a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, when lives are current with Him, the community cannot help but take notice. Because it changes things. It changes relationships. It changes business. It changes how you do business. It changes everything about your life. And so people can't help but take notice. And, and that is attractive. It's attractive. It's like a beautiful fruit tree that is full of fruit. We say, look at that tree. Look how many apples are on that tree. I'd like to take a picture of this. We, you know, we take a picture of it. We don't do that to the ones that have one or two or three that are half dead, leaves are falling off. No. It's attractive when we see something that is fruitful and that is simply living out what the master gardener intended it to do. And so here in this picture, we have that when the people got right with God, when they had a heart for God, when they sought him with all their heart, it made people around them say, wow, I'd like to have that myself. Like, how can I experience that? That's beautiful. I want to be a part of that group. And so it says that all the neighbors and the people from all around about, they fell to them in abundance when they heard that God was really at work. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. <laughs> no, not quite. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's what it's all about. When we are producing fruit, when we are seeking God with our whole heart, truly the glory then goes to God. We are just a reflection of his glory. Verses 11 through 13. You know, I'm reminded of Joshua's words as he was about to move off the scene of leadership. We read about there in the latter part of the book of Joshua. But he's talking to the people there and he says, you have a choice to make. Choose who you will serve. Choose this day who you will serve. And you're welcome to serve those back there. You remember that. You remember what they've done to you. Remember all those situations. Either serve them. But I'll just tell you, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you have a choice to make. You know, these people here were saying, <laughs> it's God and God only. You can do what you want to do, but we're going to serve the Lord. And once again, we have this word seek. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. They said, whoever does not seek the Lord will be put to death. And they sought God with all their heart. They sought him. And, and I say, we fight complacency. We fight drift in our spiritual lives with purposeful action. In verse 10, we have the word, they gathered together. Verse 11, they offered. Verse 12, they entered. Verse 13 is a picture of seriousness. 
Verse 14, they swore. But all of these are action words that, that define the seriousness of their commitment. And the fact, that they, the fact that they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord is a very strong term. It shows how important this transaction was for them. This wasn't just a little handshake. But they sought God. They entered into a covenant we will, they stood together saying, we will serve the Lord. You know, seek is an action word. It's a word that requires something from us. And a person who is truly committed will continue to seek God day after day, year after year. It's an ongoing experience of life. I will seek the Lord. It's a journey. It's something that never ends on this side of heaven. On the contrary, someone who is complacent about their spiritual life, someone who is cooled off, they just, they don't see the urgency of that. They, they think that where they are with God is good enough. Like, I've made things right with God one time. Like, I professed to be a believer one time. And I read the Bible every once in a while. I go to church, you know, I... Good enough. They're satisfied with where they're at. And here we see a group of people who weren't satisfied. No, they continued to purposefully seek after God. Verse 15, and this is the conclusion of the matter here, and that is that when they gave God everything, when they completely sold out to God, when they surrendered the things that had once held them and gripped them and gave them so much spark in life, when they surrendered them to God, look at the result. There was peace. There was joy inside and out. Not only did they experience that joy within, but it says that there was rest round about. An inner and an outer transformation. And I just say, what a beautiful, what a beautiful example of wholehearted commitment to God saying, yes, we acknowledge where we're at. We acknowledge that we have room to grow. We acknowledge that we have a long ways to go. And Lord, we want to keep seeking you day after day. We want to make your word the guide for our life. God will bless you so richly for that. He certainly will. Could you say this morning that your relationship with God is better than life itself? Could you say that? Something for us to ponder as we go from here. Uh, there are many believers around the world today that have come to that point that are so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that it doesn't matter if they lose their family if they lose their own life, it's worth it because their love for Jesus Christ far supersedes anything physical. May that challenge us and may we also then have a renewed desire to be one of those who can say, yes, Lord, your love is better than life to me and your relationship, the one that we share together, uh, means more to me than anything here. Let's pray.